Father, the only, the only way that we can stand is in the power of Jesus Christ. Lord, His life given for ours, our life filled with the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, we live and move and have our being only through Him. Anything that we have is from You. All that we love eternal is from You. Lord, we thank You. We praise You. We pray as we move from song to looking into Your Word that You would strengthen our hearts and minds, clarify the things that we have questions about. But Lord, more than that, free us from the events of this morning or this afternoon, whatever it may be, so that we can laser focus on Your Word right now at this moment and on You. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Maurice Claret is is one of the most uh, sought-after motivational speakers in the entire country. He played football for the Ohio State Buccaneers. He led them to a uh, national championship. He set an Ohio State record for a freshman as a running back, and when he gained over 1,200 yards, he scored the winning touchdown in the 2003 Fiesta Bowl. And on the first day of the 2005 NFL Draft, he was picked up in the third round by the Denver Broncos. However, his football dreams never came true. Maurice simply traveled with the wrong crowd of people. He ended up in prison before he could make those dreams come true for armed robbery. He spent nearly four years of his life behind bars. And yet, somehow, the Lord Jesus Christ got a hold of his life and saved him. When he speaks motivationally, his main line is this, Show me your friends and I will show you your future. It's a modern take off the Apostle Paul's words. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins or spoils good morals. What and who you value determines your future. For Maurice, his identity was formed by his friends and it led him to crime and it led him to prison. But his encounter with Christ, the same with the Apostle Paul, the same with me, the same with you, gave him a new identity. A person in his value system that then controlled everything. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul, who knew this theologically and experientially, said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Consequently, if I know what you value, I will be able to tell your future. Because what you value is 
your identity. That's where it resides. The Scripture says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the question that I ask of myself and others today is, so who, who are you? And of course, then I answer, what kind of question is that? I'm me. I know who I am. But any of you who are involved in our small groups or have ever been involved in a group such as our small groups, uh, and our groups in particular, you've gone through a short series about koinonia. And then you told your story. And as a part of that story, you begin with your name, you begin with whether you're married or not, what your job is, career, where you were raised, and all those kinds of things. You begin with your background, your hobbies. But as you move on in that small group, you begin to understand and learn something at a deeper level. Expressing who you are, who you really are, to someone else is an extremely difficult task. It's very complex. And it's hard. It's not easy. People who think uh, big thoughts about why this is, like Dr. Shahran Hesmat, argue that our identity relates to the what or the who of the things that we value. And then those things dictate the choices we make and the choices we make then reflect who we are. In our text today, we're going to discover something, something that perhaps you are unaware of, and that is that the Ephesians were having an identity crisis. And this crisis was so severe that the glorified, risen Jesus Christ told them, if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand. You will cease to exist. I don't know if you're familiar with the latest statistics, but this year, in 2020, every week where services were held last week, 192 will not be held this week. That's how rapidly churches are closing their doors in not the world, right here in America. And while not all of those would I dare to presume were brought about because the Lord removed their lampstand because of sin, many, in fact, are. So let's read in our text in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Last book of the Bible, chapter 2, Verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As you'll recall, when we looked at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, just prior to this, John told us that he was carried in his spirit to the day of the Lord. And he reported what he had seen and what he would see in this heavenly realm. And what was the first thing he saw? It's mentioned again here in verse 1, taken from chapter 1, and here in chapter 2 in verse 1 it's mentioned again. The first thing he saw was the golden lampstand. Now, a little bit of language that I think might open this up for us just a wee bit. In Arabic... The prefix, the, the, mm, the M sound, the meme, indicates place. So, for example, when Barbara and I lived in, in Jordan, we were called in by the Muhabarat. The Muhabarat is the, kind of their equivalent to uh, the FBI, sort of a state police thing. And so, Mu means the place of, Khabarat means information, data. So, this is the place of information. Sharib means to drink. Musharib is the place of uh, drinking. Now in English, we do exactly the same thing. Uh, Airy, like the end of my name, only it doesn't mean it that way because it's from a different source. But nevertheless, an aviary is a place for birds, right? A eatery is a place for eating. A bakery is a place for Baking. We do the same thing. So in Hebrew, it's exactly the same as it is in Arabic. Now, I'm going to say something, but understand it's not a dogmatic statement. But John's readers, hearing what uh, he wrote in this phrase, seven golden lampstands, would have immediately envisioned a menorah. That's what they would have seen. And here's why. The M, the M sound... In, uh, it means the place of. So the place of the, what? It's the place of lights. If you would recall King Hussein's, the late King Hussein's wife's name was Queen Noor. Noor means light. In English, the kind of the Latin equivalent of that would be like Lucy. It means, it means light. And so, when we have, when we read this, we see menorah. It's not the lights, but it's the place of the lights. And it's not even translated. It's actually a transliteration. So it's like baptism. Baptism is not an English word. Well, I mean, we've made it into one, but actually it's a Greek word, uh, baptizmo, that's just you take the letters and you just move them across. That's the same thing that they did with menorah. But let's actually translate it. Well, how do we do that? Some of your English translations, if you care to write this down, you can look it up later, actually do translate it correctly. And that's in Exodus 25, 31. 
where what we see is that the actual translation for menorah is lampstands. And we discover in Exodus 25:37 that there are seven lights. So there are seven lights on these lampstands in the menorah, the place of lights. Now this description is so close that it's impossible to miss or to think of something else. But again, I want to go back. I'm not saying that's what he saw. I am saying that's what his readers would have envisioned. Now, here's the important part. God, in Exodus, told the craftsmen how to make this. This thing is patterned from, as Hebrews 8.5 tells us, it served as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. God Himself gave this pattern. And once we begin to understand this, we are moved further into an understanding that this is not an ordinary letter to an ordinary church. There's something more going on here. It represents something something heavenly. I mean, at the very least, when you see how Christ holds this in His hands tightly, if nothing else, it tells us that the churches are in firmly in the hand of Jesus Christ. It tells us something too. It tells us that He walks among them. I don't know if you think about this, but Jesus Christ Himself is present with us today and not simply in your heart in that sense. He is walking among the lampstands. He is in His church. And the question I would ask, as we're going to see, is what would He commend? What would He commend us for? What would He admonish us for? Another reason why this passage is more than what it seems is why are there only seven and why are they all in Asia Minor? doesn't make sense. By now there were hundreds if not thousands of churches. I mean, think about this. Why not Antioch? Why not Philadelphia? Why not Caesarea Philippi? Why not Rome? Why seven? Why these seven? Now, there may well be a a prophetic procession through the church age as it uh, is thought of by many, but tracking that, as the movie Princess Bride says, is like tracking a falcon on a cloudy day. So, So I'm going to stick with what I have some measure of certainty about. And I'm certain of this. It was not simply historical. At a minimum, those churches... These letters that the Lord told John to write to these churches at a minimum reflect churches throughout the ages. That is, there are Ephesus-style churches today. There are Smyrna-style or Pergamum or Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. These types of churches are with us. But not only that, and this is where it gets a little more intense for you and I as individuals. At the end of the letter, listen to what he says. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Singular. Individual. Now he's moved from the churches. Now he's gone, as preachers say, from preaching to meddling. Because now he's not talking about the church. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about us. In other words, these kinds of things can be reflective in us. These conditions not only exist in churches, but in our own heart. And as we go through this, I want you to ask yourself the question, what letter is reflective of my life? What would you say which letter is reflective of First Colony Bible Chapel? These are very important questions and we have to welcome the Lord's commendations and His rebukes. And so the Lord does commend them. As we read, the Ephesians did what they said they were going to do. And they did this without question. They worked themselves until they were completely spent. They worked for the Lord until they were exhausted. And they even hated what the Lord hated, the Nicolaitans. Now, nobody really knows who they were. Some awful things have been said about them, but that's after the fact, so we don't really know. What we do know is that it's comprised of two Greek words. One we're very familiar with, Nike. I've preached about that. It means it's exactly the same word that's used later on in verse 7. Overcomer. To overcome. But the second part of the word is not good. It's from the word laos. It's the word people. In other words, these people were designated as overpowering, dominating other people. This is something that is foreign to the church. It's foreign to the Lord. Even in leadership in a church like this, the leaders actually are servants. There's no sense to dominate. And so the Lord hated that. But you know what? If you went to this church, if you went to Ephesus, you would have your socks knocked off. I mean, this you would be thoroughly impressed. It was a mighty church. They couldn't bear evil. They couldn't bear falsehood. They bore up under tribulation. They had not grown weary. Who would not like to be a part of that church? We would. Sounds perfect. But as Howard Hendricks would often say, uh, if you find a perfect church, don't go there. Because if you do, the church will not be perfect anymore. So, we see here that the Lord, He had this commendation, but He also had a complaint. They had abandoned their first love. Now this... This is not the word lost. They didn't lose their first love. You have to understand this. The word that's used here is one who forsakes another. If you want to put this in a relationship between a man and a woman, it means one of them left. This is not an easy word. It's not something that was just lost through neglect as such. This was a willful choice that the Ephesians had made. Can you imagine that? I mean, the Ephesians. You know, 
you know, you had, you had Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and you had Paul and you had Timothy. Wow, what a genealogy. Then who'd you have? John. And John is saying, you've abandoned your first love. Now, many men I deeply respect, deeply, truly respect, make a strong argument that what's in view here is not love, the first love, it's not your love for Christ, but your love for others. That is, your brotherly love. And the argument would then be that the church had moved towards orthodoxy, but away from people. The body of Christ became a building. The message had become something to be endured. My neighbor, someone to be tolerated. Worship is more about who forgot to bring the bread in the cup than it is about worshiping Christ. Forgiveness falls flat. Judgment rises to the occasion. The battle for truth is won, but entirely at the expense of the tender soul. In other words, a form of legalism had crept in. This position has merit. But I want to take it a step further. I view those symptoms not as the problem, but as the symptom. They're not causal. Here's why. Christ said that the Ephesians had abandoned, forsaken their love. Well, first love. What love is that? You know, preachers, yeah, go, go on YouTube, go on the radio, you'll find this. Preachers will will say, they'll say, do you remember your first love? How passionate, how exciting, how captivating, how filled with dreams of the future. Problem is, technically, most people's first love is their mom. Okay? Not a lot of, not a lot of passion there, but that's who you fall in love with first, is your mother. Okay, John, you're missing the point. Am I? He said first love. And so am I really missing the point? The other thing is this. Is the Apostle really saying that my love for Christ, unless it is fervent, passionate type of love, this mystical numinous that bears me weightless into the presence of God, a la, you know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. See, that's where I get tied up. I, I, get, I do. I get tied up there. Is he really saying that passion is the measure of our love for Him. I don't think so. In fact, when you study that kind of passion, what happens is, is at least in the relationship-wise, you know, that begins to dissipate somewhere around the six-month mark. <laughs> Might last up to four years, but not after that. It just kind of goes away. But I'll tell you this. I will guarantee you this, that in a healthy marriage, over time, couples love each other now more than they ever did before. And while we all might like and have liked that endorphin rush of new love, a deeper, more profound, more accepting, life-giving love emerges over time. 
Agape is never in the New Testament seen as an emotional kind of love. The Greek has plenty of words for love that deal with that. And yes, I always have to put this caveat in here. I'm not saying that agape is devoid of that feeling. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's primarily not that. To think of the ecstasy of the middle-aged monks and nuns just misses the point. Agape has always been understood best in the Hebrew sense of hesed. And that is God's loyal, loving kindness. It is a verb. A verb. It is an action. It is a doing. The acting out of what we value in real time. But now here's... This is why... you know I. I could divide these messages far deeper than I'm dividing them. But because we just read in the book of Ephesians that these guys were exhausting themselves in doing work for the Lord. So, how does that sort out? I think the solution comes down to when we look at this term first, in first love. This is the same word that's used in the description of the glorified Christ. The Alpha and Omega. The word here is Alpha. Your Alpha love. So what is Alpha? This word used by the same author just a few verses earlier mean. Well, in relationship to Christ, if it meant time, then you have a problem, I think. Because why would Jesus Christ bind Himself to the space-time continuum? I mean, if Alpha means the beginning, does Omega really mean that there's an end to Christ? No, not at all. That's not what He's talking about. He's not referencing time at all. What He's talking about, because there is no time in eternity, He's... He's trying to express, not trying, I'm trying to explain what he expressed as to the reason why when God was asked what his name was, he said, I am. It's without bearing to time. I am. So Alpha and Omega are used to express the eternality of Christ, the preeminence of and the precedence of Christ. No beginning, no end. So what does Alpha in relationship to love mean? Well, I argue that it means the same thing that it does in English. While it could mean the first version, you know, like of a program or something, this is the Alpha version, uh, in English it primarily means order of precedence. So you have the alpha wolf or the alpha dog or you'll hear on the news occasionally the alpha male. That does not mean the first in time. All those are long gone. It means the most important. So to me, my first love that is of the loves that I have for my wife or my children, my grandchildren my family, my friends. The alpha love is for Christ. And it is, hear this, 
It is not how hard you work at loving someone. It is how that alpha love is in your heart that determines the width and the breadth and the depth of your love for others. If you're having trouble loving someone, love Christ. And as you love Christ, that love for others will grow. It's not based on works. It's not based on how hard you work. The Ephesians are proof positive of that. They were doing everything possible for the Lord Jesus Christ to the point of exhaustion. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to take your lampstand away. So while cold orthodoxy was the symptom, the cause was their waning identity in Christ. So now we're back to identity here. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That is, a person in Christ has a new identity. So think about Ephesians 1. Writing from prison, the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle to the Ephesians. He wrote to encourage the, the church. Let me tell you how high this church was viewed in Rome. It was called uh, uh, Luminasia, the light of Asia. Paul tells us this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Whatever we have, we have from God. Whatever we need, He has provided. And Ephesians tells us that our identity, where is our identity found? It is found in valuing Christ and what Christ has done for us. So our identity is not based in what we do, but it's based in who we are. God cares far more about who you are than what you do. And who are we? We are elected. We are adopted. We are filled with grace. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We have an inheritance. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. That is who we are. That is our identity. The real problem of the Ephesians was that they were abandoning that identity and adopting a new identity likely of works. Without the love of Christ, our identity in Christ becomes, just becomes more and more alien to us. We seek more of the world's approval. We work. We labor. But the purpose becomes, seriously, it becomes a self-licking ice cream cone. You know what that is. That is a self-perpetuating system whose only purpose, whose only goal is to keep it running. We work to keep the lights on, not to glorify God. This is what he's taught. This is what has happened. Their identity was muddled. So Christ then gives us a three-step process for clarity and to understand what is it what is he so i'm going to take your lampstand away unless you do three things what are those three things first remember remember essentially the height from which you have fallen then repent 
Repent's simply a military term. It's about face. You're going that way, I want you to go that way. And then return. And it's interesting because he says, return to your first works. It's fascinating because they're filled with works. But not all works are equal. The church that loses its love will soon lose its light. No matter how doctrinally sound it might be. So in this repentance, it's not to be confused, in my mind, it's not to be confused with, oh, I sinned, it's an event, I need to, uh, I need to repent I, and, and ask God to forgive me. I think this is far deeper. I think this is, a, this is a moral injury. This is the willful abandonment of the love of Christ for the love of something else. And usually that something else, if works is a burden, understand this, that the love for the something else is not the works, it's the self. Self has taken charge again and it needs to be relinquished to Jesus Christ. It's today what we might call a moral wound. It's not a sin against someone else. It's a sin against the core of your own identity. The return here is uh, most likely a recognition of who we are in Jesus Christ. Those things that I pointed out. Foremost of which is this. I am a child of God. You know, the Word of God animated by the Spirit of God is one of the most, if not the most, powerful force in the world. But the Word of God animated by the self is holy and completely destructive and cannot be used anywhere else, any other way, and it only leads to pain and separation and anxiety. But then we move beyond that. He, he, he pauses, he gives that little yet, you know, you hate what I hate. That's a good thing. And hate's a very strong word. But finally, we have this promise in, in verse 7. The promise itself is that those who remember and those who repent and return and do those first works will partake uh, of the tree of life. This is none other than Eden. This is none other than returning to the very beginning. This is Adam walking in his unfallen state through the trees with Jesus Christ, with God. But he fell. God kicked him out. And in the future, we are all going to have access to that once again. This promise suggests that overcomers will experience the same kind of fellowship with God that Adam had with God in the beginning. And they and Eve, and what they enjoyed before the fall. Maurice Claret's identity was once formed by his friends. It is now formed by Jesus Christ. Regardless of his talents and abilities and work, by the way, he says very specifically in answer to a question, how did you get away with doing these wrong things for so long? 
This, this, this calls for an internal understanding of how we think about people as well. We put people on pedestals who we must not. I don't know that we should put anybody on a pedestal, but certainly not a sports figure. Certainly not someone who is Hollywood. Not necessarily because they, they may have done some things that you think highly of them about, but just because of who they are. He directly answered his quest, that question by saying this, because I was good. Because I scored touchdowns. When you can score touchdowns, they'll leave you alone. What a moral system we have fallen into. I'm not talking about us necessarily individually. I'm talking about our society where we allow people to get away with things simply because they can shoot a basketball or throw a football or score a touchdown. Where's that kind of appreciation for our teachers or our nurses? Are those who actually do serve others. But, no matter what his talents or his abilities were, he became a menace and a danger to society. But now, because of the love of Christ, the alpha love that he has for Christ, His identity, his new identity is secure. It's not in his friends. It is in the Lord. I trust that your identity in the Lord is not measured by how much you work for the church, by how many hours you volunteer, by the things that you do. As good as those things are. But I pray that it is your tireless recognition of who Christ is and what He has done, not out there filling your bank account or giving you a house or something like that. What He's given you in the heavenlies in your heart. Being forgiven. Being redeemed. Being loved. Being a child of God. Father, very few of us have the kind of strong identity that will get us through the trials and tribulations of life in a graceful and meaningful way. But you do. Your presence in our lives, in our hearts, Your blessings that you have given to us in the heavenly places, that will carry us. Your Spirit will bear us through whatever the problems and difficulties of this life might be. May we ever turn to you and to you only for our identity, for our salvation trusting in Christ as the one who gave Himself on that cross, who died in our behalf, who rose again from the dead and is coming back. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.